Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and today I've got Jeff Redorn in studio, which makes me extremely happy. We're going to continue our series, In the Beginning. We are already at part six of In the Beginning. And if you've missed any of this, I really encourage you to uh, go back and listen to previous shows, because all of this has an ongoing thread. We're working through this uh, so beautifully, and today we're going to um, move ahead, talk about the big E-word, evolution, right? We are. Yeah. Hi, Bill. Hi, Jeff. Welcome again to the show. Thank you. Yeah, nice to have you here. Let's uh, let's do a little review just so we can get everyone caught up with what we did last time. Sure. Well, um, by the way, I've been kind of thinking of the flow, and I kind of hope, hopefully we'll get through today kind of our understanding of evolution versus uh, special creation, which I think is described in Scripture. And then the last time, I think we'll make the last time lesson number seven, and I want to describe my seven earths model to kind of wrap this whole thing up. So seven earths on the seventh series and kind of fits, doesn't seven it? Seven what? Seven earths model. Seven earths model. Yeah. Okay. Seven different earths are described in scripture. So we'll, we'll finish up with that. Oh, awesome. So we have in the last six sessions, I guess, to kind of sum it up here in a couple minutes, is we really were trying to paint a picture using Genesis as an accurate and historical text of the creation of everything, really. I mean, God paints this picture that everything that was made was made by God. So Psalm 33, for example, says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry hosts by the breath of his mouth. God has spoken the universe into existence. So Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. He spoke and everything was made that was made. Now, when you think about it, 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 just an aside, in Revelation 19, Jesus returns to earth to judge the nations. And what, do you remember the picture of him coming on the clouds with power and great glories, riding this white horse, and what's coming out of his mouth? A sword. A sword, a double-edged sword, which is the word of God, which is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. So that same word in which God created the universe, he is going to come and judge the world. And in fact, that sword was coming out of Jesus's mouth. We discussed in the rest of the New Testament, we learned that it's actually through Christ that the world was made. So John 1 says, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, Jesus, the world did not recognize him. All things were made, Hebrews 1, through whom Jesus, he, God, made the universe. So with the rest of the New Testament, we understand that it's actually through Christ that the universe was made. So we go back to Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Your mind as a New Testament believer in Christ Jesus should immediately go to Christ, actually. In that moment, God created everything out of nothing. And so we described 
this word in the beginning, God created. That Hebrew word was the Hebrew word bara. And in that instance, and in only in that verse, does that word have this meaning of what uh, in Latin is called ex nihilo, out of nothing he created everything. Everything else in Genesis, whenever that word is used or any other word for made or create or whatever, is that he formed it, he fashioned it, he accomplished it, he made it out of something else. So when he makes man, bara, he makes man out of the dust of the ground. So only in one one Genesis 1-1, is when it says he created everything out of nothing. And that, of course, is described now by science as the Big Bang, this moment at which the universe came into existence. So we discussed some of the history. So Edwin Hubble was looking up into the night sky through his telescope. He noticed that all of the universes were, I'm sorry, all the galaxies were expanding, and he concluded, oh, they must have come from a singular point. And that is what we describe today as the Big Bang. Science says that that was about 14 and a half billion years ago. That's actually fine. And there's actually nothing in the Bible that prohibits the universe being formed in a Big Bang some 14 and a half billion years ago, as we've discussed previously. That time frame is absolutely fine, biblically. But then Genesis doesn't stop. We then have the account of God creating a garden on this earth in six literal days. So he creates the sky and the ground and the separates the water from above, from the water below. He creates the ground. He makes all the plants and all the animals. And finally, he makes man. And so we have a second Big Bang described in Scripture. This second Big Bang is a Big Bang of life. Suddenly, life appears on this otherwise dead hunk of rock. And in six literal days, about 6,000 years ago, as the biblical timeline confirms, so when you go back through the generations all the way back to Adam, you find that that was about 6,000 years ago. God made all the plants and all the animals, and he made man after his image. And that is a second Big Bang, a Big Bang of life. And that's what we want to talk about today. So there's your review. In fact, it's interesting because science actually recognizes that there was a Big Bang of life. It's called generally the Cambrian explosion. And a lot of scientists believe that this happened some 500 million years ago when virtually all the major phylum of the world came onto the scene. And uh, I just think that explosion of life came in a garden a lot more recently, some 6,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're going to talk about. All right. Now, Jeff, what you just said could also create plenty of controversy, right? Yes. Um, so, well, you've got the controversy of how old is the universe, mm-hmm. and we've talked about that over the previous sessions. So this debate about whether or not the universe is old and, and or whether or not the universe is young. There is a body of thought within Christianity called young earth creationisms that believes that not only is Adam... 6,000 years old or thereabouts, but also the entire universe. And we made a point in previous sessions of separating those two questions. 
How old Adam is is one question. And I agree with young earth creationists that Adam, his birth date, actually he wasn't born, so his creation, creation date. date, happy mm-hmm. creation day to you. You mm-hmm. know, that's, yeah. yeah. He's the only guy that got that song. Well, yeah, sung to him. Yeah, well, Eve, right. Eve too, right? Well, yeah, Eve too. Yeah. She was created or made yeah. by God. Yeah. But the age of the rocks underneath Adam's feet was a different question. That's a different question. And I think Young Earth Creationists put those two questions together. So that's one. The second big mm, controversy is the one we're going to tackle today. And that is really, it's really two questions. How did we get the diversity and complexity of life that we see in the world today? How did we get here? And two, where did that life begin in the first place? All right. Do you understand that these are two different questions? Mm-hmm. How did life begin and how did we get all the different species and complexity that we see today? And so obviously I think evolution is one of the big lies of the world because it's just not consistent with the biblical narrative. And we talked about this previously, the importance theologically that Adam was a literal person in a literal garden with a literal tree, a literal command not to eat from that tree, mm-hmm. a literal fall requires, therefore, a literal redeemer, Jesus Christ, who was called the second man, the second Adam, to come to die for the sins of the world. If you have evolutionary origins of mankind, then Adam is just a story and is not literal. And I would argue if you don't have a literal fall, you don't need a literal redeemer. That's how important this whole concept is. Mm, Yeah. Because if Jesus came to save us from the sin of the world, there must have been a literal fall. There must have been. Mm -hmm. By the way, Adam is described in the Old Testament by Jesus himself and is actually included in the genealogy of Christ. Now, Mm -hmm. that's kind of would be odd for a fictitious... A mythical character to be in the genealogy of Jesus. Absolutely. Mm. So here's the problem. So we're going to address both of these questions. Where did life come from and how did we get the variety of species, the diversity and complexity of, of life? It's interesting that science has the idea of Darwinian evolution that, that attempts to explain the diversity and complexity of life that we see, but they actually do not have even a working theory, really, a viable working theory of where that life came from to begin with. We also have this problem when it comes to origins that you cannot build. We now understand that you cannot build any biological system without DNA. Any protein structure that is made requires assembly instructions. And those assembly instructions, if you will, how to make that protein structure Mm -hmm. is in the DNA. So while Darwin developed his theories, which we'll talk about today, he had no understanding of the cell of DNA or anything. Today, we now understand that DNA is the key to everything. Every biological system that is made requires the instructions to make it. So this question of origins is not really where did life come from, it's where did DNA come from that is required for life. And by the way, DNA only exists in biological systems, and biological systems require DNA to be built. So you've got this question of, okay, if you're going to explain the 
the origins of biological systems, you have to explain the origins of DNA, which cannot exist without a biological system. Okay, do you get that? I do. So DNA is the basic level of instruction, or I will describe it this way, information. There is information in DNA, that information on how to build a a life, a biological system. We know that when we see information, information only comes from an intelligent source. Okay, let me repeat that. We know that information can only come from an intelligent source. And so, therefore, we have this idea of intelligent design versus evolution. Mm. Jeff Redorn is my guest. We're continuing our study in the beginning. This is part six. We're going to be chatting about evolution today, which would be interesting. Just got a nice note from a listener. By the end of his life, Darwin knew he was wrong and sorry for a lot of what he proposed in regards to evolution. We'll be right back. First name Jeff, last name Verdorn. We're talking about his series in the beginning. We're at part six already, and we're going to get to some theories, aren't we, Jeff? We are. So let's pick up where we left off, this intelligent design idea versus Darwinian evolution. And remember, we're going to first discuss this. Okay, so where did life come from to begin with? Um, Intelligent design basically says that it must have been an intelligent designer who put life in the first place on Earth. Darwinian evolution says that, oh, life began about three or four billion years ago. We actually don't know how it began, but life has been growing more, evolving more and more complex ever since. The Bible, I think, says this, that God made all the species of the world according to their kind, the Bible says, some 6,000 years ago in a garden, there was a worldwide flood. Every kind of animal was put on the ark. And from that time on, we have seen a diversity or adaptation or a micro-evolution of kinds into multiple species. So one kind of cat evolving into all of the different cat species we see today. God didn't have to make all the different species of dogs right? The, you know, the St. Bernard, mm-hmm. the Chihuahua, the whatever. Those are all bred. They've, they're adaptations. That's called microevolution as species evolve over time. So evolution, microevolution, you can get adaptations and variations in species and different kinds of sparrows and stuff. Um, that's not macroevolution. That's not Darwinian evolution. That's simple adaptation. But the first question, where did it begin with? Science has actually had some very interesting 
uh, theories on where life began in the first place. One of the oldest is something called spontaneous generation. You know, when you leave fruit out in a basket, what tends to show up after a while? Flies. Yeah, fruit, fruit flies, flies, right? Mm-hmm. Well, science actually believed for a while that, that, that life spontaneously generated, that somehow that there was no egg there or something else that was laid there. It just spontaneously generated. There was another thing called biochemical predestination by a guy by the name of Dean Kenyon who thought that, well, it was just the properties of amino acids that chemically were attracted to each other and then created the first life. Um, he then, about five years after he wrote that book, which everybody basically adopted as kind of the theory of where life originated, uh, changed his mind. He was actually asked a question in a class by a student, and he says he, 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 it made him start questioning this whole issue of DNA about, well, if no protein structures can be made without DNA, then how would they have been chemically developed through the attractive properties of amino acids. That's, I don't want to get too technical here. But I respect his willingness to change his mind. And he did, yeah. and now he's a proponent of intelligent design. There's another theory called panspermia, and specifically directed panspermia. This is the idea that life exists in the universe everywhere, and that we are just one of many places where life exists. The... The ancillary theory to that is that life on this earth was was directed to come to earth by an intelligent life. Okay, wait for this. Richard Dawkins, who is probably one of the world's best known atheists, actually promoted this idea in a movie called Expel by Ben Stein. I don't know if you, did you ever see that movie? I didn't. It's a great movie. If you ever get a chance, watch it. It's about this concept of why people who believe in intelligent design are being expelled from institutions, you know, all over the place. But in this movie, Richard Dawkins made this statement that intelligent life on this planet, I'm sorry, life on this planet was deposited here in a primitive form from other intelligent life somewhere else in the universe. Hmm. Directed panspermia. Now, any fifth grader is going to ask the next question, well, where did that life come from? He doesn't actually have an answer. He says, well, any life that would have deposited on Earth would have been the result of Darwinian evolutionary processes and then turned around and deposited life on this planet. So Richard Dawkins proposed in this movie that aliens deposited life on the earth. So he doesn't really answer the question of where life came from. He just pushes the problem off to another world. What's really fascinating is his concept of alien life depositing life on the earth, wait for it, is actually the biblical story that we find in Genesis. Intelligent life deposited life on the earth. Do you see that? Mm-hmm. Only the intelligent life isn't little green men from another planet. It's God. And God made life on this planet. So I don't know if anybody's ever brought that up with Richard Dawkins or not, but it's actually parallels the story of creation. Now, remember, 
One of the laws of science is called the law of biogenesis. And the law of biogenesis states this, that life only comes from life. So at least Richard Dawkins was recognizing this when he said that other life, intelligent life, deposited life on this planet. But that's exactly the biblical narrative. God, the author of life, deposited life on this planet. Isn't that the biggest irony? Yeah, whatever. So, but even if you give Darwinian evolution this first um, simple life form in some kind of pre-mortal swamp, you have to explain, okay, well, how did it evolve into more and more complex organisms over the years? So, I don't think Darwinian evolution has an answer to the origins of life to begin with, as we just described, but I also don't find their explanation for the diversity and complexity of life to be viable as well. Let me give you an example of how, a couple examples of how the world just accepts this idea of Darwinian evolution. My daughter was at a university here a few years back, day one of her biology class, and she was at a Christian university, by the way. And she texted me because she had opened up her new biology textbook. And on the first page of the first chapter of this book, it said something like this. Darwinian evolution explains everything we know about biological systems. And she texted that to me. And I texted back with a smile emoji, or it explains nothing, (laughs) right? But this is a Christian university, and they were teaching this concept that evolution explains how we got all this diversity of life in this world. All right, so we need to understand that. So a brief history here before the break in just a couple minutes. William Paley back in the 1800s wrote a a book, and it was the watchmaker argument. Some of your listeners are probably familiar with this famous argument and it, it's the title of the book was Natural Theology or Evidences of the Existence and Attributes of a Deity Collected from the Appearance of Nature. That's when titles of books were titles of books, wasn't it? <laughs> it was published in 1802, and he basically says this. If you find a watch in the woods, you're going to conclude that it was not made there by natural forces, but someone put it there. Someone else... Someone intelligent would have made the watch and he put it there or it fell out of his pocket. But it's not the result of natural processes. Well, that's a logical and simple conclusion, I think. I think mankind is able to recognize design and know that if you came across, say, a cabin in the woods, that cabin just didn't form by natural processes. Someone cut down the trees and formed the the cabin in the woods. We see that. We recognize it inherently. We recognize design. Mm -hmm. We're continuing our series in the beginning with Jeff Verdorn. We're in part six. We're talking about evolution. Interesting topic. Well done, Jeff. We'll be right back.
Thank you for joining me today. I'm with Jeff Verdorn. We're continuing our series in the beginning. If you missed any of this, I always recommend going to the beginning because it is helpful to hear it from the start. You can always uh, go to myfaithradio.com and that podcast will be available right after the show. All right, Jeff, where do we pick up? Well, we were talking about Paley and his argument of the watchmaker. Interestingly, Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist, wrote a rebuttal to that in his day called The Blind Watchmaker and said, basically, no, when you find a watch in the woods, you can assume it was the result of natural random processes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's that's evolution. Um, Darwin came along in 1859, wrote his book, The Origins of Species. This is where this whole idea came from in the first place. He theorized that all species descended over time from a common ancestor through a process called natural selection. I think one of the turning points in our in our nation about this argument was the Scopes trials. I don't know if you remember the Scopes monkey trials, but a guy by the name of John Scope was put on trial for teaching evolution in Tennessee, which had recently passed a bill making it illegal to teach evolution. I think it was one of these defining moments in American history because during that trial, the, the news media I should say the maybe the fake news media <laughs> made Christianity and the idea of God making, you know, species uh, made it really look ignorant and and silly, um, and it was kind of a defining moment. But 50 years later, by the way, in 1981, a federal judge in Arkansas ruled that creation science was religious apologetics and therefore could not be taught in public schools. So look at it from the heights from which we have fallen, Mm -hmm. where we had a a state basically saying you could only teach creation and not evolution, and now today you can only teach evolution and not creation. That's amazing. Isn't that? What a turn of events. Well, over the decades, um, if you then thought or believed that God created the universe and all the life in it, you found yourself being canceled. Before cancel culture was cancel culture, you would be canceled or expelled, as the Ben Stein movie went about, if you believe these things. So if, if for example, uh, uh, a guy by the name of uh, Gonzalez was a professor at the Iowa State University. He wrote a book called The Privileged Planet and basically making the, the fine-tuning argument that our planet appears so fine-tuned that of all these criteria are within such tight tolerances that it actually appears to have been designed purposely by an intelligent being in order to support life. It just wasn't random. Well, he didn't get tenure and ended up leaving Iowa State University. That kind of cancel culture was already at play even back in the 80s surrounding this issue. And that's why actually that Ben Stein made that movie. So 150 years after Darwin... I'm at the Field Museum in Chicago, and you probably remember seeing the picture of the chimpanzee progressing Mm -hmm. in demand, right? Mm -hmm. That's a famous drawing. It's from the 1960s called the March of Progress. Well, we happened to visit the Field Museum in Chicago 150 years after Darwin. So they were having this big celebration. And in the front of their museum, they had this display uh, called the 
human story begins. And they actually had skeletal uh, remains of, of the march of progress, a chimpanzee to a man. That's how ingrained this idea of evolution is in the secular community. And in the front of this display was something else. They had an artist model of one of the supposed transitionary fossils, one of the supposed missing links called Lucy. Now, Lucy is kind of a famous, and we'll, hopefully we'll have some a couple minutes at the end here to talk about Lucy in a little more detail. But Lucy is one of these supposed missing links, and they have a full-size artist rendition of what Lucy looks like. Now, remember, the Field Museum has like 20 million real species in their museum, all by, you know, type, all over the museum. But in the front of their museum in the 150th year of Darwin, they had this model rendering of something that never actually ever existed. It's just a theory that it existed, this Lucy fossil. So, but I actually have hope. Because today, for the first time really, I think this evolutionary wall, this this monopoly on the idea of where we got all this life, evolution, that wall is cracking today. There is actually a website um, called uh, descentfromdarwin.org that has over a thousand scientists from around the country that have signed this and said, hey guys, we need a different theory. This idea of Darwinian evolution just doesn't explain it at all. And I'd like to go into maybe two of the primary reasons why. But there are a lot of people in the intelligent design community right now who are making really significant progress in promoting this idea that Darwinian evolution just does not answer some of the fundamental questions of where we get complexity and diversity of life and that intelligent design does. One of those guys, by the way, is uh, Dr. Stephen Meyer, a brilliant guy that's written a number of books uh, called Signature in the Cell, another one called Darwin's Doubt, another one he just put out last year called The Return of the God Hypothesis. And he outlines in amazing deal, uh, detail beyond my even understanding of, you know, some of the way he describes it, although he does write simply, basically saying Darwinian evolution doesn't explain diddly, that you have to have an intelligent source behind uh, this complexity. All right, so what did Darwin say specifically? I'm going to quickly go through two tests that Darwin himself outlined in his book, The Origins of Species, 150 years ago. And the first is on this complexity, all right? Darwin said this, If it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed, which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. Well, guess what? Darwin didn't understand DNA. Darwin didn't understand the inner workings of a cell. Darwin didn't understand the complexity within these biological systems. One such complexity, and I show this video in my class when I teach this because it's absolutely fascinating. It's the story of a researcher who studied the, uh, his name is Michael Behe, and he studied the bacteria flagellum. 
What is a flagellum? It's the little tail propeller that's on the rear end of a bacteria. And you say, how does that work? Well, he studied this structure and found that there are over 20 unique protein structures in this little flagellum of the bacteria. There's a motor. There's a stator. There's a rotor. There's a drive shaft. There's a U-joint. There's a propeller. It's basically a mini outboard motor with all of these components. One scientist, in fact, called it the most efficient machine in the universe. It propels the little bacteria anywhere it wants to go, backs it up, reverses, goes forward, back. It's amazing. But the point is, it's made up of over 20 components that all have to be there. Each one of these protein structures needs to be there in the right place, assembled properly for this system, this propeller, to work. Michael Behe coined this phrase, irreducible complexity. That concept is very important because it says this. If you have any biological system that is made up of multiple components, if you take just one of those components away, it suddenly doesn't work. So that component, that system is irreducibly complex. You need all the pieces in all the right places in order for it to work. One simple example is a mousetrap. A mousetrap is made up of what? It's got a wood base. It's got the neck breaker piece, right? It's got the spring. It's got the dinner plate where you put the cheese. It's got the holder, a couple pieces that hold all these pieces together and so on. And you have, therefore, a mousetrap. You take one of those pieces away and you don't have a mousetrap at all. You just have a bunch of pieces that really isn't good for anything. It's the same thing with biological systems. Your eye, your circulatory system, your skeletal structure, all of these systems within you individually are irreducibly complex. They don't work if you take out one component of them. Another example is a dolphin's um, echolocation system, right? You have a part of the dolphin that sends out signals. Actually, there's multiple pieces within the dolphin that facilitate this sending out a signal. And then it receives the signal back. There's multiple parts of a dolphin that receive this signal. And then there's actually this, some kind of processing within the dolphin that processes the signal and creates an image so it can see through its echolocation. You take one of those components away and it doesn't work. Evolution cannot explain how all of these different components evolved at the same time and more importantly evolved at the same time and are assembled together in order to perform this function. In other words, you could evolve a transmitter in a dolphin, but what good is a transmitter unless you have a receiver? Mm -hmm. What good is a receiver if you don't have the transmitter? And if you can't interpret what you're actually transmitting and receiving, well, then it's all for naught. So evolution needs to explain how do you evolve all of the components of an irreducibly complex system all at the same time. And do you know what? Some of the top biologists in the world are discovering it can't. It doesn't explain it. 
So that's the system. That's the idea of irreducible complexity. And, and I mean, we know this inherently. Any engineer who tries to solve a, you know, some kind of engineering problem is going to design a system that has multiple parts in order to function in, in a way that it, it, it's designed. It's the same thing with biological systems. Um, I saw one video, and it said this about the dolphin. Get a load of this. That I hear, I see this all the time, by the way. On the, I love to watch like Animal Planet and mm-hmm. nature programs and so on and so forth. And they always talk about design, but they always talk about evolution. And, and it's like you, you can't have both, folks. And here was one quote from one of the videos. Echolocation requires several component parts, each designed for a specific function. When integrated, they form the most efficient sonar system on Earth. But then like two minutes later, it goes on and talks about, and the dolphin evolved over millions of years. It's like, no, no, no. You can't have random, you know, processes developing the most complex sonar system on Earth that's perfectly designed with all of its parts together. Mm -hmm. Hmm. That's so interesting. I'm back at the mousetrap. (laughs) (laughs) That's more my level. Well, but you understand irreducible complexity. I know it's kind of a big word. No, no, I get it completely. Yeah. It's uh that's why I got a pest control guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's take a little break. Jeff Dorn is my guest. We're continuing our series in the beginning. We're at part six. We'll talk about evolution. What a fascinating discussion this is. We'll be right back. We are with Jeff Verdorn, part six of our In the Beginning series, a lively spirited discussion we're having about evolution. And Jeff, uh, you have uncovered all kinds of stuff. Great uh, killer illustration with the dolphins. That had to be, the sonar system had to be in place from the beginning or we have no dolphins. It's kind of what makes a big part of that dolphin, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Now, the, the, the rub is... Every single biological system in every species is that way. It's irreducibly complex. So we can owe uh, Michael Behe, uh, who coined that phrase in his study of the bacteria flagellum, for that concept. But it is a powerful an, argu- an argument for design. All right. We've got limited time, much to cover. I know. We're running out of time. The second criteria that Darwin gave in his book was on transitionary fossils, all right? So he said this, quote, the number of intermediate varieties which have formerly existed on Earth must be truly enormous. Why then is not every geological formation and every stratum full of such intermediate links? Good question. Geology assuredly does not reveal any such finely graduated organic chain, and this perhaps is the most obvious and gravest objection which can be urged against my theory. What is he saying? He's saying, well, if every species has small 
incremental changes to the next species, we should not only find fossils of species A that turned into species B, and we find fossils of species B, but we should find fossils of every intermediate transitionary form from A to B. All right? Mm-hmm. So there's, I, in class, I actually show a video of, of a guy by the name of Dr. David Berlinski, very smart guy, secular scientist, who has basically rejected the idea of evolution as an explanation of the diversity of life today. And he points out that evolutionists believe that life evolved out of the sea and went to the land and then out of the land, from the land back to the sea. So a whale is the result of evolutionary processes from a previous land animal. And so he does this analysis in this video, and he's, he's brilliant. He speaks, you know, very wonderfully and very <laughs> smart. And, mm-hmm. and he's, I need to start doing that. Yeah, yeah. more like that? Yes. Okay. Um, he says that if you're going to move from a land animal to a marine-going animal, he said... My rough estimates, just back of the envelope calculations, there's about 50,000 metamorphical changes that need to occur. Mm-hmm. 50,000. Wow. So, for example, say, take an elephant, for example. It breathes through its nose and its mouth. An elephant breathes through the top of his head. An ele- a, 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 a whale has, has massive amounts of oil in its head to help it dive down in the oceans. It's got a special circulatory system. It has a system for feeding that's unique in the animal world because it has to feed its young out in the open sea. So it has a very unique uh, system, let alone the physical changes, the arms, the legs becoming fins and a a tail fluke. It's feeding system. You have baleen whales that have massive baleen uh, in their mouths that filter out all these small particles. There's nothing really like that in in a land creature or in an elephant or anything Mm -hmm. that walks around that. So he says... On estimates, his estimate is about 50,000 changes to go from a land-going creature to a sea-going creature. Now, he points out, we have whale fossils. We have land-going creature creature fossils, like an elephant or whatever that turned into a whale. Where are the other 49,998 fossils of something that is in transition Mm -hmm from one to another. All right? Do you see the question? Oh, yeah. And they just... There should be lots of evidence along the way. Well, that's what Darwin said. It should be enormous. and But we now know, 150 years after Darwin, um, that we have discovered most of the fossil species that we're going to discover, statistically speaking, we know that we have found over 90% of all the species that we're ever going to find. And we don't see in the fossil record, huge number of transitionary fossils. What we see are completed whole species adapted to their environment. Now, are there some fossils that look transitionary? Are there some species today that look like they're transitions? Yeah, there are a number of, a few of them, a handful of them. For example, the mud skipper. If you've ever seen this little fish, it comes up on the mud and it walks around on little pectoral fins and it, it gathers up and it's interesting because you watch one of these shows on Animal Planet about it, and you'll get the same kind of comments. And the mud skipper is perfectly adapted to its environment. And I believe you come back a million years from now, and a mud skipper 
is still going to be a mudskipper, mm-hmm. right? It's just one of the many species that God has made. So I don't think the fossil record uh, supports this idea that there are truly an enormous number of transitionary fossils. Now, the big question is, in a couple minutes, are there examples of transitionary fossils for men, for mankind? Are there missing links? Now, I'm kind of out of time, but there have been a number of attempts over the last 100 years to show the world a missing link. Now, what's interesting is several of them have proven false, proven to be fraudulent, actually, like Pete King, I'm sorry, Piltdown Man in 1913 was actually proven to be a hoax. It was actually a orangutan, part of an orangutan jawbone with the cranium of a fully developed modern man. And it was purposely put out onto the world as a hoax to, to make it appear like it was a transitionary um, being between chimpanzee and man. There's other ones. Nebraska man in 1922 was actually, it was found out later to be just, by the way, all they had was a tooth and they made an entire narrative that this was the missing link. Out of a tooth? Out of a tooth. Mm -hmm. And you know what? It actually was a tooth of an animal called a peccary, which is a relative of a pig. Mm. Peking man, Peking man came along a few years later. Actually, all those fossils were lost. They're not found anymore. And many people believe that that was also false as well. The latest one I mentioned earlier is this uh, fossil called Lucy. Uh, Lucy is the popular name of this group of fossils that was found uh, in Ethiopia, Ethiopia back in 1974. Uh, we don't have time to go into it. I talk about this in my class quite a bit. But it's basically, is this an animal like an orangutan, or is this the missing link? And many, many people believe that what they actually found were bones of an animal like a chimpanzee or like an orangutan, um, and not some pre-human ancestor, um, and so on. So, look, there is no clear, proven transitionary fossil found to try to link animal, the animal kingdom to man. And I don't think there ever will be because man was not made after his kind in Genesis chapter two, man was made in the image of God. And I think every single person on this planet knows that there is a light years worth of difference between man and animal kind. Mm -hmm. There's actually One more Big Bang, that maybe this is a good time to discuss it. We talked about the Big Bang of creation, space, time, and matter. We talk about the Big Bang of life, that God made all all this life. But there's also this Big Bang of man. Mankind is different than the animal kingdom. We write books. We, we, We have poetry. We have emotions like love and anger and fear and so on. We ascribe beauty. We have morality. You look back, now, evolutionists will say, well, our morality evolved. But look back at the animal kingdom. Do we see a moral code in the animal kingdom, or do we, eat, do we see survival of the fittest, you know, a dog-eat-dog mm-hmm. world? That's what we see in the animal kingdom. Uh, so there's actually another big bang, and that is of man, and specifically the morality of man. And you know what the Bible says? 
The Bible says that God has written on man's heart his righteous requirements. He didn't do that to animals. No. He did that to mankind. Great hour, Jeff. Good. Yeah. We kind of got through it. I skipped we over some parts. We kind of did. We did skip some stuff, but we'll we'll pick it up. Part seven. We'll do Perfect. that in a couple of weeks, right? Yes. And we do have a bunch of questions, which we didn't get to because I wanted you to be able to cover your material that you prepared. So thank you for that. And uh, just so you know, we had some, some great questions that came in, and we'll try to have maybe some uh, Q&A time a little bit later. Perfect. Yeah. And that's uh, our show for the day. Thank you for joining me. And I'm not done gushing over what happened uh, during our our spring fundraiser. You were amazing. Once again, thank you so much uh, for being so generous and so thoughtful and so intentional and stepping up when we asked. That really was an amazing, amazing time. If you missed any of this show, you can always go to the podcast at myfaithradio.com. Maybe you've got a friend who'd be interested in this discussion with Jeff. You can pass it along. You can text it to him or email And then tomorrow, I look forward already to being with you. I hope you have a great night. And as you lay your head on the pillow, just know that God is working out his great plan in your life. He loves you. I do too. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.